Today on Coco Disaster, we've got trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with D and that stands for, well, D. Good evening, and welcome to the Coco Disaster's third annual Spooktacular! I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm spooked out by this intro. <laughs> anyway, hi, I'm Hobotron. You don't, have to, you don't have to be scared. <laughs> don't worry, we're, we're talking, I mean, we're talking about horror. You know, we're talking about spooks and frights. Yeah, yeah. But things, things are going to get dangerous, yet. Things that go bump in the night, which is, you know, that's, that's anime for you. <laughs> yeah. A vampire bumper D. That's what they call him. <laughs> that sounds like it sounds like an initial D spin-off more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Alright, but yes, so uh welcome to the Spooktacular. We're uh tackling a Halloween theme for this Halloween episode. Uh I remembered to time it correctly, unlike last year. So Join me and Hobotron as we talk about Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, the 2000 film based on the popular book series. Well, popular might be the, a strong word, but based on the book series by Hideyuki Kikuchi. This is one that, like, had sort of been on my radar before, but just other things had gotten in the way. I hadn't really, like, heard a lot about it to get super interested in it. This is a... This is like kind of a cult classic film in America from kind of the time before anime was really cool, right? When people were still like trading tapes for way too much money. Yeah, it was basically like the period when I was like actively into anime. <laughs> yeah, so it, it it speaks to this very particular time. This sort of isn't talked about anymore. And it's kind of hard to find information about it because it was a time where like people just weren't as interested they weren't as aware to all these different things so sort of like you know this gets passed up a lot and only like talked of in memory of these things that came out before yeah usually it was just like fan sites and those were not always the most credible sources so yeah but this this one particular is particularly interesting because it was like made for american audiences mm. we'll get to that in a bit but it, it's very interesting because this was like the attempt you know, in some ways to, like, get to an American audience to try to, like, explore anime in a way that hadn't been done before. It's a pretty interesting, it's like, I think it's, like, a really good film for, you know, this time of year. Like, it hits all the buttons that I feel like make for, like, a good Halloween watch. Yeah, I felt like, yeah, it's like a really, it's very much an extremely late 90s, early 2000s anime, but... But I, I don't know. 
I, I think it I think it aged a little better than some of the stuff from that time, honestly. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways this like this shows its age, but it doesn't feel out of place with, you know, the interests of like, you know, the modern anime fan. Right, yeah. Especially since like good horror series are so hard to come by. Yeah. Like I feel like a lot of the ones you tend to hear about these days are like weird subversions or just like hilariously awful in a way that people gravitate towards instead of being like genuinely good at like horror. Right. Well, it's like, I guess there's just the feeling that things have just, everything's been done. Yeah, I, I can see that. And <laughs> Vampire Hunter D goes out of its way to be, very specifically be like, this isn't being done. This is me. <laughs> it has an identity to it. And goddamn. Does it want to diversify itself? Right. Yeah, so uh, join us for a a spooky exploration into this uh, oft-forgotten movie. So, to start off, a little background info on Vampire Hunter D as as a book series. It's a series of Japanese light novels that are written by Hideyuki Kikuchi, who has also written some other books like Demon City Shinjuku, Wicked City, Dark Side Blues, a bunch of other like horror or horror adjacent franchises that had gotten anime OVAs up to this point. He had built up a reputation. And these books are also illustrated by Yoshitaka Amano, who is best known for doing primary design work for Final Fantasy 1 through 6 as well as the feature film Angel's Egg and doing design work for Tatsunoko Productions for such series as Gotcha Man. Oh, man. So, you know, pretty big deal. I, I feel like part of his popularity definitely helped kind of push Vampire Hunter D early on. Yeah, I, I never even knew that. Like, I loved, like, Gotcha Man was one of the first, like, anime I ever actually got into when I didn't even know what anime was. <laughs> <laughs> And so the publication of these books began in 1983, and currently there are 34 novels released in the series, some of them cut up into multiple volumes. And while the series never really picked up in America outside of sort of the the cult status of these movies, Dark Horse picked up the the rights to uh, an English release of Vampire Hunter D in 2005, and currently 22 of the novels are translated and released, though they're a little hard to come by because Dark Horse seems to have sort of a fire-and-forget sort of publishing practice. <laughs> like, uh, I was talking to um, to Jordan the other day, and he was talking about how he currently can't find the latest volume of Berserk despite it coming out, like, I'm gonna say in, like, the past four months, just because it's on such a short print because Dark Horse has all this shit coming out. And it seems like they're just like, yeah, we need to print as many things as possible in as little quantity as we can get away with. That's insane. (laughs) Yeah. Is that like a worldwide thing or is that just like particular countries? Um, I'm not sure with with Dark Horse. I don't know how far they expand outside of America. Right. So the story focuses on a mercenary vampire slayer named D, who is a uh, Dampier, though all of the movies and the video game based on Vampire Hunter D 
use the term Dunpeel, which is the transliteration, and it's really annoying every time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and so to, to make note, uh, a Dampier is a half vampire, half human. So D is the son of Dracula, and he travels a post-nuclear Earth in the year 12,090 AD <laughs> to protect the human race who for millennia at this point have been sort of enslaved and ruled by the vampires to the point where like fear of vampires has literally been written into the DNA of humanity. Right. And the series includes a variety of pulp genres within its narrative. A lot of different books focus on very different sorts of storytelling, including elements of science fiction, horror, high fantasy, some Lovecraftian mythos, um, folklore, and occult science, and they all sort of blend together. In total, the series has ended up seeing two movie adaptations, a series of audio dramas, a PS1 game, a manga, and then within the past five years, I believe, a comic series was announced and kickstarted, and that's currently in production. And also currently in production is a CGI animation series from, at the very least, the same director as Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, yeah, like, it feels popular, and it's just one of those things that, like, doesn't seem to have stuck with the West in the same way that other, like, cult classic sort of series have. Right, yeah, it's like, it's not quite on, like, Cowboy Bebop level. Yeah, for sure. You know, having, like, a legacy and then being embedded in just the consciousness. Like, it's there, and then I feel like, I I don't know, at least at least for, like, you know, people <laughs> people as old as me, it's kind of like, you know, who, who were into it at the time. There is that recognition of, like, oh, yeah, even if they weren't into it, because I wasn't, I was never really into Vampire Hunter D. Um, I watched it once or twice, but, like, I feel like there was still a general level of awareness. But, like, there were a lot of people who just either passed on it or just never got really into it. Yeah, it feels like a name more than anything, right? Where people are like, oh, right, Vampire Entity, I've heard of that. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's that's the beginning and ending. But so, with Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, I think it's important for us to talk about the original Vampire Hunter D movie which was released in 1985 by Ashi Productions, which was based on the first novel. And at the time, uh, it had a budget comparable to an ongoing anime series. Uh, generally, theatrical releases would see like a, a larger budget, some more production value put into it. Unfortunately, Ashi Productions couldn't put that together, and so it was seen as a little cheap at the time. Hmm. Even uh, Kikuchi, the author, agreed that the first movie, in in retrospect, was not up to the quality that he expected out of it. The film would see a fine arts theatrical circuit release in the U.S. in about 1992, which then would follow with a VHS release and television spots on networks like TBS, Cartoon Network, and the Sci-Fi Channel, being marketed as the first animated horror film for adults. So this is where the first sort of, like, press and interest involving Vampire Hunter D came to be is in 92, we had sort of this this low-key release of Vampire Hunter D and it started finding its way onto TV. Mm. Which seems like pretty impressive. Like, I feel like 
even in the 90s, it's like so easy to have looked at a cartoon and just been like, oh, of course, this is for kids, right? Like, regardless of its content. Right. Like, that that dismissal still exists. So yeah. it's surprising that even in, like, the 90s, like, these things are being pushed towards, like, bigger, like, general audience sort of uh, TV broadcasters. Well, it's like, even like, yeah, like, especially like early 90s, like 92, like, I feel like they didn't start even, even sort of pushing until like mid to late 90s. Yeah, like, once it started becoming, like, a more profitable business instead of just, like, commercials to sell toys. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So, with this release, the Vampire Hunter G ended up becoming something of a cult classic in America, and fans asked for a sequel movie. So, again, Kikuchi agreed that he wanted to kind of retry this whole movie thing, kind of make it look better, and in 1997, planning started with Studio Madhouse in charge of the animation. And with a veteran anime director, uh, Yoshiaki Kawajiri, heading the project. He had previously worked on a number of adaptations for Kikuchi's other novel series like Demon City Shinjuku and Wicked City, and also worked on other sort of cult phenomenon in America, <laughs> Ninja Scroll. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I very... Very similar timing, I feel, and very similar sort of, like, audience yeah. and, like, you know, projection towards this particular type of uh, animation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, the movie is based on the third novel in the series titled Demon Death Chase. Just a fantastic name for a book. It really is. And the... The idea was to more closely follow Yoshitaka Amano's art style and character designs when putting together the anime. Bloodlust was made with the explicit interest of releasing the film in American theaters. So, uh, uh, much of the post-production work, like once they started making music and voice acting, was done in the U.S. And the English cast includes a number of uh, a number of voice actors who are still veterans within. The industry, such as John DiMaggio, Wendy Lee, and Pamela Segal, as well as a couple others that didn't survive past the early 2000s in anime. But like those, these are the mainstays that you can see sort of like starting up here. Yeah. John DiMaggio plays like five characters. Yeah, like, I even, definitely. Even like... then, he's like, oh yeah, I can do all the voices for your movie. <laughs> like there was like definitely like going like, oh, there he is again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow, look, it's John DiMaggio. <laughs> and even in Japan, the initial theatrical release of Bloodlust was in English with Japanese subtitles. Huh. I think most of the English physical releases as well do not come with a subtitle option. Like, it's exclusively dub. Like, I know the most recent Blu-ray is dub only. That's really interesting to me because it's like... A lot of the times, like, for some of the lip sync stuff, it feels like it's really fitting for, like, you know, like, it's it's that kind of padding out for space to match the lip sync. Yeah, it kind of goes both ways, I feel. Yeah. Like, it feels like in some cases, like, they were they were prepared for it, and others they weren't. Yeah, like, like it was designed for, you know, Japanese, and then, like, trying to um, patch in the dub, and then going, oh, we got more stuff we gotta say, because the mouth is still moving. <laughs> So, like, that's interesting to me that it was made primarily with English audiences in mind. 
yeah, I wonder if this doesn't end up a case where, like, there wasn't a lot of communication because it was, like, 2000. So they couldn't, like, you know, they couldn't match the the animation to the VA, that kind of thing. Mm. Like, they both sort of had to work with what they were given. Yeah. And so, while Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust saw a release in 2000, it was a unfinished cut, and the completed movie premiered on September 23rd, 2001, and played across 12 theaters in the U.S. with a total gross income of $151,000. Nice. Like, pretty low, but you also consider it showed across 12 theaters in 2001 and was an anime, right? I mean, all all things considered, that's, like, yeah, that's somewhat impressive, but... (laughs) That doesn't seem terrible. Inflation probably puts that, you know, a little bit higher, but not significantly. Yeah. (laughs) Low risk, low reward, basically. And so it was uh, released to favorable reviews, seen as a cult classic anime film, you know, and especially an animated feature that could be enjoyed by adults. So that's Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. That's the that's the crux of the movie. And now let's talk about <laughs> the many, many things that happen in Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. Yeah. So, really good opening shot, I feel, right? Like, right in on sort of this, um, this, like, horror vibe. Mm-hmm. Hits you with a big piano note and pans out through a graveyard. To give a little more context on the world, uh, in 1999, in Vampire Hunter D, the world went through uh, a nuclear fallout. And vampires kind of had anticipated this and built bunkers such that they could be the most technologically advanced species on the planet when kind of everything settled. Right. And so they became the rulers of the the earth. They encoded fear of vampires into the the human species. They forced humans to sort of like forget all of the classic vampire weaknesses and kind of plunged <laughs> humanity into a very dark point uh, for a long, long while. And now, here in 12,090 AD, humanity is finally starting to return to its former glory. It's it's definitely not up to where we were in 1999, but they're getting there. They have guns. They have, you know, like, kind of gothic architecture. They've moved forward. And so... Groups of humans have come together to become vampire hunters and take down the uh, the vampire nobility and kind of return humans to the top of the food chain. Right. And so we open on this town, which is covered in these crucifixes, and they immediately break as some dark force enters. A young woman wakes up in her bed due to some kind of disturbance and is captured away by a figure that does not appear in her mirror. And that's, like, I think a really nice touch, right? Like... Yeah, no, they, it's a It's a really cool moment. Yeah, they do some pretty good, like... Like, just throughout the film, they, they have a pretty good sense of showing, not telling. Yeah, so, yeah, it's like immediately, oh, that's a vampire. Yeah. And so then 
we open on D, who is traveling to uh, a job where he meets uh, a man named Elborn, who says that his daughter, Charlotte, has been kidnapped by a vampire and wants D to either rescue her or, if she's been changed already, to kill her and return the body. And it turns out that she has been abducted by a vampire nobleman named uh, Meyer Link, who is known not to harm humans needlessly, but regardless has kidnapped this woman. (laughs) And so, out of fear of her safety, D and another group, the Marcus brothers, have been hired to get her back. And whoever brings her back first gets the money. And the Marcus brothers are <laughs> almost like comic foils to D throughout yeah. the whole thing. No, I liked them. They were they were probably, generally speaking, my favorite characters. Yeah, they're they're um they're kind of Scooby-Doo-ish, right? There's like five of them. They all have their their various abilities, and they drive around in this like tank to to kill like zombies and vampires and do this hunting stuff. Yeah. Well, like and um, like what's uh. What's the oldest brother's name? I think Borgoff. Yeah, Borgoff. Yeah, he's. I, I liked him a lot. He was like a good, like world weary, but also like brash Spry. and kind of yeah, and like kind of snarky ass character. I kind of liked him. He's always chomping on a big cigar. Yeah, that's great. And his crossbow's really fucking cool. Yeah, he has a uh, a wrist mounted crossbow. <laughs> it's super dope, and he he always puts like ten bolts in yeah. it. He's just like he just crams a bunch of silver bolts in it. And then he does stuff where he's like, you know, he hears D coming up from the other side of the, the hill and is like, he's right there. And then he like takes his shot. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So the Marcus brothers are Borgoff, who is the leader. Nolt, who is sort of this big sort of berserker character. Yeah. And Kyle, who's sort of just like this blade master, I guess. Yeah. He's not quite as defined as the other two. Yeah. He's he's kind of there and he just like uses he just uses swords because someone had to. He's got like a like bladed cross boomerang. Like he's you know like he's got that like Castlevania secondary weapon basically. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, along with them are a couple of siblings: uh, Grove, who is sort of this physically disabled psychic, and Layla, who is a, a vengeful sort of vampire hunter. Yeah. She's more interested in a personal grudge because her family was killed by vampires rather than the interest in money like the uh, the Marcus brothers themselves. Yeah. Her weapon's really good, too. That, like, shotgun revolver. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a revolver that has, like, five holes on it, like, like yeah, four like chambers. Four chambers, and it just, like, <laughs> it's like basically someone took, like, four revolvers and just, like, combined them all into one. It's good. Yeah, the, the 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 tech of this series is really good. And then, it like, like when she shoots someone with it, it's like it blows like a three foot hole in them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, the majority of this movie, like the first hour or so, is D and the Marcus brothers constantly trying to catch up to Meyer Link's uh, stagecoach, which is pulled by robo-horses. Yeah. Or cyber-horses. <laughs> and trying to to save uh, Charlotte. Uh, the first time we encounter Meyer Link, 
D is able to catch up to his stagecoach and has sort of this quick sword fight on on the top of it. And the, that's the point where we learn that Charlotte Charlotte's abduction is not quite as everyone expected. Right. She has genuine concern for Meyer Link and appears to have more or less like run away with him like eloping more than, you know, a proper kidnapping. Yeah. She like calls out his name and and like D's like what the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it kind of stops him from fighting cuz he's like, "Hmm, this job seems a lot more complicated than I initially thought." Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Meyer Link has hired a group of like mercenary bodyguards um, called the Barbaroi, who are all sort of like mutants. And in this world, mutants are like were genetically created rather than being born. So these are all like these monsters born of vampire science. Yeah, because they have um, they have a shapeshifter, they have a shadow manipulator. And they have a werewolf. Uh, the werewolf, by the way, uh, when he transforms, <laughs> his chest is also a different giant wolf head. Yeah, that's, he's got a good it's design. Wild. <laughs> yeah. So as they go through, we sort of explore everyone's abilities. So, like um, Grove, the psychic for the Marcus brothers, is able to, with the use of some kind of like drug psychically project himself outside and like shoot lasers and kind of interact with the world without having to move from his uh his bedside manner yeah he's like this yeah he astral projects himself into like this being of light it's it's kind of awesome like he just like just beams shooting all like out of his like just out of his entire body just like blasting holes in all the creatures and stuff Mm -hmm. we learned that d sort of has like all of the benefits of being a vampire, like excessive human strength and all of these sorts of things, with very few downsides altogether. Like, his sun sickness isn't nearly as strong as everyone else's. Yeah. Like, he, he can deal with a lot more than, than your average vampire. Like, when he gets, like, sick from it, it's like, I think it's like, what, most of the, like, he's he's been out pretty much, like, pretty much the entire day at that point. Yeah. Like the only time he starts to get sick is later in a fight with the uh the shapeshifter. Yeah. And that's just because it's like way more exposed than the other places he's been to. And he's just been like pushing himself too hard or whatever. Oh, like at least like what like left hand was like saying, like tell him to slow slow the crap down. <laughs> By the way, D has a symbiote in his left hand that talks to him and like he's the most that you really get into D's character. He he talks a lot in comparison to D, who is very quiet. Yeah. And also, like, one of the very few bits of comedy in the movie come from him because he just, he's a, he's a real jabberjaw. Yeah, he, he's, he almost serves as, like, a pseudo-narrator uh, at times because he, he tends to, like, give you context for what's happening. Because he'll, yeah. like, something that obviously, like, D is not going to really say or react to if he can, if he has any say in it. You know, he'll be like, hey, there's this. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, this is an hour of the movie, but a lot of it is kind of, like, setting up for the climax of the story. So, to, to just round out the things, of the Marcus brothers, both Nolt and Kyle die because of the Barbaroi. Hmm. With only Borgoff, Grove, and Layla surviving of the, of the original team of five. 
And also through this, at multiple points, D and Layla sort of have this budding relationship, not romantically, but just sort of like understanding each other. Yeah. Because at the start, Layla kind of does this suicide run on Meyer Link and ends up getting hit in the chest and bleeding out really hard. And D saves her by wrapping her wound. And she expects there's some ulterior motive to it because he's a dampier, you know, he also needs to feed on blood. So, you know, he, he's not seen as trustworthy by uh, Layla. Yeah, she like, she like initially resents him or yeah, for uh, saving her life, basically. Yeah. And then when D needs to get a new cyber horse um, after his first one fucking explodes. Did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When when he went off the like the the cliff or whatever. Yeah, when they went off the cliff and D saved himself. I did not expect the most visceral explosion of a horse to be animated. Yeah, like, ribs come off and you see the fucking ribs. <laughs> it's so nasty. But he goes to get a second horse, and Layla tries to like get one over on him by telling the sheriff of this town that he's walked into, like, hey. This guy is a dampier, uh, you know, those guys that are half vampires, so pretty dangerous, right? And so the sheriff goes to confront D and sort of throw him out. But the person selling D the horse was saved by D decades ago uh, when he was a child. And so D is able to escape and sort of like, this gives Layla a more humanizing look at D where she's like, oh shit, D's like, a good person, right? Like, yeah. he's not, he's clearly not just doing this for blood or for, you know, his own gain. He's just doing these humanitarian things to help people, despite the fact that consistently everyone shits all over him because he's half <laughs> vampire and therefore everyone's scared of him. Yeah. That was, that was like a pretty, I liked that scene. That was pretty good. Yeah. No, it was, it's, it's really charming. It's like all of a sudden it's just like this this bizarre standoff and you don't know why it's happening for like about like two or three minutes until like, you know, he gets far enough in his story where you're like, oh, okay, yeah. Because <laughs> like, because this old man suddenly pulls out like this gigantic gun and points it right it's at the sheriff's head and everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and it's cool too because it, it plays more into the sort of like the way that D works is because he's a, a dampier, he doesn't age like everyone else. So the idea that like, you know, this like 80 year old man remembers this guy from 70 years ago. Yeah. And like, oh, I owe you my life. You know, I remember you. Like the fact that he has this touch on the world, despite the fact that he lives on so much longer than memories of him ever will. Yeah. And after the fight with Caroline, where Layla ends up saving D because he sort of succumbs to to sun sickness. Uh, she sort of explains to him her previous life and how she hunts vampires to avenge her uh, her parents. And D talks back to her, kind of you know, in response to say that he hunts vampires because he feels like it's the only thing he can do in his life. Yeah, it's like almost like a sense of like atonement. Yeah, because it's, it's very clear that he despises the fact that he is, like, half and half, right? And um, Left Hand brings that up even more, where uh, when he's going to kind of the final confrontation with Meyer, Link, and Charlotte, yeah. 
left hand is talking about how like one of the things that is pushing him is how disgusting he finds the idea that another dampier like him would be born this is a good bit to help expand the characters it's it really humanizes some characters in like what is otherwise like a really sort of high octane sort of action movie (laughs) yeah and so at the end layla kind of admits that you know through her vengeance she hasn't been able to make any friends or lasting connections with people and is scared that no one's going to mourn her when she dies. And so she makes a pact with D where they kind of expect one of them to die. D definitely talks about the possibility that he'll die, that if one of them survives, the survivor will bring flowers to the other's grave to make sure that someone remembers who they were. Yeah. And so now we reach sort of the final act of the film. Uh, the three Barbaroi mutants have been killed, and Meyer Link takes Charlotte to the castle of Chafe, which is owned and operated by Countess Carmilla. And Carmilla is not only a vampire, but is a ghost vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Yeah, who was killed by uh, Dee's father, this this ancient noble vampire king who is, like, so disgusted by Carmilla's bloodlust that he's like, oh, even for a vampire, this is, like, really extreme, guy," <laughs> And ends up uh, stabbing her through the chest. But so Carmilla haunts her mansion as a ghost and, you know, is is here to provide... Meyer and Charlotte with a way to escape their current predicament, because it is a case of forbidden love where none of the vampires are going to like that Meyer Link fell in love with a human, and none of the humans are going to like that Charlotte fell in love with a vampire. And so what ends up happening is we find out that in this castle is housed a spaceship. And not just a spaceship, it's a spaceship that looks like the inverted castle from Symphony of the Night. (laughs) And so, uh, we learn this idea that it, it, with the vampire's technological advancements and complete unchallenged rule of Earth, they at some point built colonies in space to sort of escape the dangers of the sun and sort of let the vampires live free. And Carmilla is giving her transport unit to Meyer and Charlotte to to escape and be able to live freely. It's it's wild. Yeah, no, I I kind of like just in general. I kind of really like the sci-fi elements of it. Like, I mean, I know we'll get into that late, yeah, later, I, I, but but yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say I know we're gonna get into it later, but I just really I I, I you know really kind of sets Vampire Hunter D apart from other horror things. Yeah, totally. Like. No other series would dare to be as, like, brazenly absurd as Vampire D does and sell it with such sort of, like, this genuine interest in building this cohesive world that has all these elements. Yeah. So, once we get to the castle, D and the remaining Marcus brothers split up to trail Meyer Link and try to save Charlotte before anything can happen. However, Carmilla, still the, you know, the owner of a mansion and a, a very strong being, even in death, 
starts to play psychological tricks on everyone who enters the the tower or enters the castle. Um, Borgoff ends up seeing a vision of his brothers being returned to life, which basically opens him up to getting shot in the back and turned into a vampire. <laughs> yeah. D ends up getting shown visions of his mother who is constantly like apologizing for the fact that D had to be born in this particular way and in this world and into this life that he seems to so desperately hate <laughs> and tries to kind of like appeal to him in like emotionally and D is like having none of it he like immediately strikes the vision of his mother down yeah I was gonna say, he seems to be the only one who, who like, knows what's going on, basically. Yeah, I, I think part of that is, you know, he is a vampire. He knows the extent of what they can do. But yeah, it's also part, part of it's probably just, you know, he's mad. <laughs> right. Not only he mad, but, like, I think he also gets like, oh, yeah, this is a vision. I don't have to worry about this. Yeah. This is fake. And then Layla also sees a vision of herself uh, mourning her parents' death and sort of blaming it on herself we kind of see this further exploration of her character and kind of why she acts the way she does yeah so borgoff has turned into a vampire shows up to try to kill layla and d but grove in sort of his um his final act it like suicide bombs on borgoff using his psychic powers <laughs> so we have Layla and D is the last surviving hunters going after uh, Meyer Link here. D is able to cut down Meyer Link by using his own sort of like visual hallucination of Charlotte, saying that she no longer wanted to go to space with him. Yeah, and ultimately it becomes a bigger conflict against Carmilla than it was going to be with uh, Meyer Link because. Carmilla's plan was to get Charlotte to the castle so that she can use her ghost vampire powers to kill her, <laughs> take her blood, and be able to sort of, like, return to life using it to rejuvenate her body. So, you know, th there was never the intention to actually send them to space. It was all just a plan to be like, oh, now I can come back and get vengeance on everyone. And also uh, drink all the blood I want. Yeah. So as Carmilla is performing this ritual and turning into like this really, this is the part where I feel like the horror becomes a lot more apparent because Carmilla is like slowly morphing from this skeleton into like this kind of like a blood wraith. Right. As she's like slowly regaining her power. Like this is like one of the coolest scenes in like the entire movie. Yeah, no, totally. There's, there's, like, blood going upstairs, there's, like, shattering, like, tombstones, and, like, just all of this, like, really high horror bullshit going on, and it's it's really good. Yeah, and, like, there, there's this fight on two planes where, like, Carmilla, as this blood wraith, is slowly trying to capture the body of Charlotte and sort of regain her mortal form, but also, like, using her spirit powers, she's sort of, like, tormenting D. Because she's so much more powerful than him. He's, you know, he's only half vampire. He's only half as strong. And sort of, like, tormenting him about his father and, you know, his his mission to kill her. And this is the point where, like, D breaks. 
Like, through the rest of this thing, he's been super calm, he hasn't been using a lot of his powers, but here he goes, like, berserk and uses all of his vampire energy to break out of this new psychological trick that she's got and <laughs> slice her in half uh, physically and spiritually, ultimately killing her. <laughs> yeah. After this, Charlotte's dead, Meyer Link is too late to save his beloved, and it's, it's time for D to collect his bounty, I suppose. He's like, hey, <laughs> I need to take this body back so uh, I, can, I can get my $20 million. Yeah. And Meyer Link's not having any of it. <laughs> so there's this, this really great fight scene between the two of them, and partway through, Layla sort of recognizes the futility of the cycle of revenge that has only caused more grief and pain for everyone involved. Yeah, she kind of, like, sees, like, where, like, Meyer Link is, you know? And is kind of mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, this is stupid. <laughs> right, like, you know, there, all of this is happening because we can't coexist in this way, even though Meyer Link is, like, one of the good vampires. Yeah, like, I mean, up to this point, you know, he was motivated by, you know, saving the woman he loved and that who loved him and and just trying to get away from a world that wanted to see them dead, one or both of them. Mm-hmm. But now the only thing motivating him is revenge. And it, it's like, it's useless. It's futile. It's stupid. It's pointless. And, like, she kind of, I think, sees that and goes, you know, this is, what am I actually doing? What, what, are, what are any of us actually doing? <laughs> <laughs> and D kind of comes to this as well. Whether or not it's because of Layla or on his own, he sort of recognizes that the thing that he is fighting as a Dampier is not Meyer Link. It's, it's some, it, you know, it's, it's the other vampires. It's the ones that would take advantage of the humanity of others. Yeah. And so he ends the fight, takes Charlotte's ring and says, this should be good enough for, for returning my bounty. Uh, now I'm going to turn my back and you can do whatever you want and I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> and so Dean and Layla leave the castle and Meyer Link takes Charlotte's body onto the, the spaceship to head to the city of the night. And D and Layla watch in the distance as it takes off and is able to break through the atmosphere and presumably make its way to to its destination. As they both sort of cheer on the spaceship. Yeah. Then for the final scene, we cut to Layla's funeral where uh, her family and a number of loved ones are watching, and Dee's sort of off in the distance, but Layla's granddaughter kind of sees him and recognizes him from the stories that Layla told about her adventures uh, in her earlier years. And it's just like, oh, I I recognize you, thanks for saving my mom, or my grandma, and invites him over (laughs) to, uh, (laughs) to hang out with the family. And he declines, sort of saying, I just came to make sure that, you know, there was someone here to mourn Layla while she passed. And he sort of talks about how glad he is that she was wrong about nobody being there to care for her when she dies. Yeah. And then he walks off, and that's the, that's the movie. Yep. 
So, the first thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust is the way that this story is just a, a mishmash of genres. Like we talked about, it's like gothic architecture. They're, they're just advanced enough to have like guns, but also they're like spaceships. And in a lot of the traveling shots with D on his horse, there's a lot of dead technology. Like you, you can see the, um, you can see like satellite antennas and you can see these like huge structures that have rotted away with the millennia. And there's just so much of this story that's taken from all these different all these different places, like especially the vampire stuff. There's so much high fantasy stuff in the rules of the vampires and, you know, these these other creatures like the Barbaroi. And what I want to ask about this is how these different individual identities are able to be pushed together into a consistent, unique identity. Because, like, I think that's something really impressive, presumably, about Kikuchi's writing uh, specifically, is that he's able to take all these disparate elements and make something that feels consistent, you know, out of all of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a large of, or a large portion of why it works is, I think, just based on this, how it's set. It's almost kind of like, they're like, okay, we're going to have vampires in the very distant future, and then, you know, a lot of the elements of it kind of naturally fall into place. Like, okay... Um, you know, obviously it's post-apocalyptic, so there's, you know, wastelands and stuff like that. It's obviously supernatural, but then there's also a lot of, you know, advanced tech, and it's kind of that... Or, like, they're very much, like, conflict between, like, te- yeah, like, technology coming back and being a very powerful, but also very, uh, you know, not, not able to cure all the ills of, of this world, you know? Right, like it's interesting how they've how they've defined like how humanity is slowly building its way back up. Like they've rebuilt civilizations and you see through like different towns they go through, like they've reinvented bars and beer. Yeah. And you know, like all these different rules. Like the sheriff exists. There are so many of these particulars that you're like, oh, yeah, they're they're rebuilding society. Yeah. And like you can see how that kind of conflicts with the the future tech of everything, where, again, that dude's selling cyber horses. <laughs> but otherwise, it's like a very Wild West sort of town. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, it, it in a way reminds me of one of my favorite IPs, which is very similar, but still doesn't touch as many on many points, uh, Wild Arms. But, like, oh, yeah, yeah uh-huh. it, doesn't, it doesn't touch on as many different genres like obviously it doesn't go into horror it doesn't go as far into sci-fi um and it you know it doesn't stretch in as many directions as uh vampire hunter d does but it is definitely a a story about the wild west where like there's also incredible tech yeah and then just crazy supernatural stuff going right yeah totally (laughs) And yeah, so, like, it's a fine line to walk and, like, put all these things together without feeling, like, really tropey, right? Like, you're just Mm. kind of checking off boxes. But it's, like, it it also comes off very Mad Maxy. I feel. Like, it's one of those things where, like, you understand this is sort of, like, the desolate wasteland. 
and the the technology that has continued to exist are the ones that people put so much of their identity, you know, around. You know, these these are the things that have survived because they're so integral to to like the human identity. Right. Well, it's like the the primary like driving genre of it is like it's primarily action and it feels like all the other elements kind of just fall in line with it and just kind of follow that's lead you know yeah or like um league of extraordinary gentlemen where like you're supposed to believe that all of these things can exist in the same world this is a cohesive world where like these similarly fascinating things are all happening across the world yeah but it's like, yeah, it's like, I mean, you know, there's, there's, I feel like a large part of it is like a sense of just, you know, you're along for the ride. This is an action romp. Yeah. Like some of it is like, don't think about it too much. Certainly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's kind of just like, um, basically as long as like you're not focusing too much on the background, you're focused more on what's actually going on and you get these little elements in the back that kind of give it flavor. Um, you know, that's really all you need. You don't need to go deep into the lore of, you know, what happened in such and such year and all that stuff. Like, as long as you get a general sense of it, like the backdrop, you know, looks right, you're good to go. Yeah, there's there's just enough sort of like generalized info about the world to make you go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, sure, you know, vampires existed, we'll, we'll give them that to start and like, okay, they were prepared for a nuclear fallout because maybe, you know, they're smarter. Yeah. You know, they have these particular powers that may give them some kind of foresight. I get it. And from there, it's like, oh, everything sort of builds out from there and, like, makes sense. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think there's an internal consistency to everything that makes it much easier to accept all of these disparate ideas. Yeah. Like, I mean, it doesn't dwell on things too long, and I think that really kind of probably benefits it. Because yeah. I, I, I wonder if, like, if they did try to dig deeper, if it would fall apart. I mean, I've I've never gotten too into the series, so I don't know like how the movie kind of meshes with the like various series and books and all that. So I don't know, but at least I think in this case it just works. Yeah, and I I was reading an interview with uh, Kikuchi uh, before we were we went on, and he he makes a point that like. I don't always remember everything I've written in my books. So occasionally I may write write in an inconsistency or two. But the focus is always on creating the narrative. And the things that I care about keeping track of are, you know, Dee's character and the, you know, the the climax of the series, you know, where I'm going to end it. Yeah. And it, it definitely feels that way where it's like, the things that you need to matter about are pronounced, and the other things are, like, given just enough justification for you to to, to go along with it. Yeah. That makes sense. Like, I think that's actually a good way to go about it, too, just in general. I mean, obviously, different, like, stories kind of call for different, you know, focus, but I don't know. I, I, I think, generally speaking, that's a good way to go, to focus on the story first and the, the world second. Because, like, I, I think about a lot, like, the other, like the other side of it, you know, you think about um, like Lord of the Rings, where you know it was all about like setting and lore, and then the story f- is ultimately kind of secondary, honestly. Right, like it, you know, you look at like the Cimmerillion, and it's like it's just a lore book. Yeah, and like th- that's always like for me. I mean, 
it's, I guess, kind of blasphemous, but for me, always reading it, it always felt like the story was the weak point of, like, Tolkien bo- books. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, like, really amazing how, you know, you even, like, figure out the economy for various factions and stuff, but, like, eh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> It's like you you could tell he was a uh, like a um a history professor first and a, a writer second. So, right. But I don't know. That's kind of a tangent and I'm sure somebody out there is very mad at me for my take, but <laughs> No, I think it's good because it it ends up going into kind of the next point I wanted to talk about. And it's how Vampire Hunter D works as like the the traveling mercenary sort of narrative. Like, again, like we talked about, like like your Mad Maxes, like things yeah. like that. How each of these books is disconnected outside of world and D. You know, they're they're telling their own individual stories, and a lot of those elements come through even in just this one movie. Like to start, D is not the focus of the books. He is how we see the world and he is sort of our you know, kind of our our returning points when it comes to, you know, like b- rebalancing uh, from scene to scene. Hmm. But his character is not explored, like, nearly as deeply as Layla, as Meyer Link, even as Borgoff. Right. Like, the the thematics of the story are wrapped up in the other characters, and D is there to experience them, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, like, other than obviously when he has that conversation uh, with Layla, and when he has his illusion with his mother, that's really the only insight we get into who he is. But, like, I guess thematically it kind of works, too, because it kind of, like... You know, like, part of the whole thing, of the point that the world advances, he's the one constant. He doesn't age, you know, he he lives forever, he's always there doing something. The world keeps changing, but he's the same. Yeah, totally. He's he's just very, he's like the the definition of a very static character, but it just, (laughs) I guess, kind of works thematically. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very simple characterization, and it's like... You get just enough hints at something bigger about his character to be like, oh, okay, I see that in later stories, these things are going to be explored. These things are going to be expanded upon. This informs me about why he acts the way he does, you know? Yeah. It, it's not extensive. It's it's just enough to sort of, like, whet the appetite in terms of D. Also, it, in similar ways like Mad Max, the focus is extremely on the action. Yeah. The 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 story is mostly like episodic action set pieces pushing towards this like ultimate end, but they are still action set pieces. Yeah. Like everything kind of culminates in a fight. Yeah. <laughs> like obviously like this is um you know, we we have a destination and it's that final, you know, like showdown. Yeah. And then there's that, you know, that sense that uh when it's over, things have kind of returned and it's you know and you know D is going on to his next adventure, you know. Yeah, and you can feel the chapter cuts from yeah. like scene to scene. 
Like, you can see where, like, this is the idea explored within the space of a chapter to push things forward. And then here's the next thing. Right. And, and like you said before, it's a very self-contained story, right? All of the characters outside of D begin and end within this narrative. Yeah. Um, this is just another chapter in the life of the vampire hunter. And the world continues on. The characters have changed mostly for the better. Yeah. You know, he, the, the point is that he tries to leave the world with one less vampire in it. And hopefully with some changed people. Like, you could very easily just, you know, never return to pretty much any of these characters in any, you know, outside of the movie ever again, other than obviously D and Left Hand. Yeah, I think there's there's something kind of funny about the fact that, like, this book refuses to have, like, the opportunity for a sequel by ending with Layla's death. Yeah. Though, I mean, I guess they could always, like... They could, they could always, because there's such a, you know, drastic, like, jump in time, they could always just be like, this is what happened, you know, after that event, but before she died of old age. But yeah, it is like, it's very much like the chapter is closing on, like, 99% of these characters. Yeah, and it, and it works because D is immortal, but, like, it really feels like Kikuchi is like, and then Layla died. Never <laughs> have to think about this book again. Yeah. <laughs> So another thing I want to discuss with this as well is just the general production of the movie. Because as discussed, the, the original one was seen as a little cheap, and this was sort of the the chance to really make like a a fleshed out movie, and it really shows. Like yeah. this film looks fantastic. Yeah, like visually it's very polished. Yeah, like um it's very clearly something that was made in, like, you know, 2000, because you can see the way that the color scheme is more washed out, you know, a mm. little more um, desaturated. Yeah. And you can see the way that, like, the animation is so unlike really a lot of anime out there because it's trying to match that Amano art style. Yeah. I feel like a lot of, like, late 90s anime is a little, like overwrought sometimes like trying to get a little bit a little little too detailed um very fast moving mm -hmm. but still very detailed so it kind of feels messy at times and i think there's a little bit of that in this but it, it, it's like not it, it doesn't make it unwatchable or anything yeah it fits amano's very painterly art style mm. right like like things flourish you know things flash a lot yeah in sort of these big kind of globs of color but, like, it, it all looks really good and, like, very consistent for an art style that is so distinct. Yeah. And as part of that, I want to talk about, like, the animation because um, we kind of skipped over them, but all of the action scenes are just incredible. Yeah. And every fight is sort of like a new challenge for the characters. No, no one fight is similar to the others outside of... The, the two D and Meyer fights. Yeah. I would say, like, my favorite one is the one with, uh, uh, Bengi or Benge or whatever, the, like, the Shadow... The, the, the Shadow Man? Yeah. Like, that, he's, like, conceptually the coolest, I think. Yeah, like, the, the fact that he kind of, uh, travels through other people's shadows to, to attack them. Yeah. And the twists and turns that those take throughout the multiple fights they have with him, like, 
The first one, he just kills Nolt because they're so not prepared yeah. for any of the Barbaroi. Well, and, like, he, he dies standing up. Like, <laughs> like this mountain of a man just is, like, he's done. And he's just, like, they, they, they know he's dead because he stopped moving and blood came out of his mouth, basically. He's just bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, in the second fight, the remaining Marcus brothers are able to sort of, like, use that to their advantage by connecting their shadows yeah. in a way that like gets them to get close enough to be able to attack. Yeah, like leading, you know, like yeah, setting up like the shadow for like the tower as a way to go, okay, he's going to have to run this way and we'll get him there. Mhm. And I liked the like specifically the whole thing too. He he would like didn't he like kill Nolt by like stabbing his shadow? Yeah, that was really cool. The the way that sort of damage transfers because he is like a shadow walker. Yeah, it was it was like a really interesting concept. Yeah, and then like the fight with Caroline is really cool just yeah. because it like Layla beforehand is sort of like shown as this headstrong sort of like shoot first, ask questions later sort of thing, but like Layla really gets to shine in this fight mm-hmm. as sort of like this counterpoint to D, who is is definitely a lot more calm, collected, sort of, like, a very analytical sort of fighter. Yeah, no, that that was another really cool fight. Like, her, like, just taking control of trees and then, like, you know, shooting giant thorns at, at people and stuff. Yeah, and the the fact that, like, even when she gets beheaded by D, because, like, her hair gets caught in the tree, she's, like, absorbing this life energy yeah. to be able to transform again. It's really cool. And, like, it's kind of a shame that we don't get to see a lot of um, Machira, the wolf, the uh, werewolf. Like, most of that fight is on the bridge where it's sort of like more of a bigger character moment for Charlotte and Mayer or Meyer than it is for, like, you know, the, the Barbaroy. Yeah. But you still get that great shot of, like, him transforming and then his chest bursting out into another wolf head. It's, it's interesting to me that he's the he's the last of the three because he's the most straightforward of the three. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of weird to me that like he was saved for near the end. But they had the cool sequence where where he like figured out all of the uh, bomb locations and then like you know re relocated them. So that way, like... Yeah, he, like, pretends to get owned so yeah. that he can take out these bombs that uh, Borgoff have placed to get rid of the, uh, the, the stagecoach. Yeah. It's a very cool moment. And then, like, he just kind of dies off screen. Yeah. Like, the fight's just immediately over. It's like, it's like yeah, you don't, you don't really want to watch this. He's dead now. <laughs> that, oh, and then the, the sequence where Grove, like, infiltrates the Barbaroy as D is trying to, like, talk to them. Yeah. It's like, that's so cool when he starts just, like, lasering all these mutants. Yeah, that was a good sequence, yeah. There are just so many great action sequences in this. Like, all the fights feel so lovingly done and with, like, such detail. Yeah. And then uh, the last thing about the production you noted was the voice acting, which we talked about a little bit because it's it was dubbed in English first, but it still feels like when they were putting together the animation, they were anticipating, like, a Japanese script. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's it's not so much that it's bad so much as it's just... I want to say, like, that era, when they were still trying to figure out how to make anime palatable to English-speaking audiences, they still didn't really know 
how to do translations, how to organize stuff. So you ended up with really awkward, stilted. Yeah, you, you can definitely feel some of that. I think like the problem for a lot of older dubs is they tried to be more literal. So you'd end up with these really stilted, weird kind of just things that didn't work. Wow, I, th- I feel like at least from what I've seen, the the, the inter- you know the approach now is to kind of you know go for cultural impact or go for general like social implication and kind of you know make it just feel organic yeah as time has gone on like people who are more interested in translation are getting into this business where like we recognize this is a type of slang so we put that as slang in the english dub you know that kind of thing right we you know the, the cultural references are adapted for the sake of, you know, English audiences. And that particularly doesn't come up here, but you definitely see where, like, the way they speak feels a little less natural than you <laughs> might expect. And yeah. maybe some of that is, like, trying to fit sort of that gothic vibe, right? Like, the older serial, older movie kind of thing. But it definitely feels like they they repeat themselves a little bit, and they definitely have a lot of trouble getting all their lines in. Yeah. Like, two examples that really kind of jump out at me is, like, when you're first introduced to the Barbaroi and, like, Benga is, like, standing on top of the uh, carriage and he's just like, oh, it's so unfair, three on one, how unfair! And, I mean, you could interpret <laughs> that as just him being, like, you know, kind of quirky and kind of just, uh, kind of jokery almost. <laughs> like, he's supposed to be comedic but demented and, you know, all that shit, but. But it was kind of like, he took like 15 seconds to say like one, basically one sentence three-way. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely feels like, you know, if it if it came down to it in modern times, like, it would just be rewritten to be more obviously antagonistic. Yeah. You know, more obvious that he's like trying to uh, get on D's nerves for his, him daring to say that fighting all of the mutants in Barbaroi is unfair. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, uh, the other scene that really jumps out at me is, like, when, uh, you know, during, like, the final act of the movie, and it was, like, before um, Charlotte, you know, dies, she briefly gets to embrace Meyer and is, like, uh, darling, is that, like, when she's dying, that's what it was, it was, like, darling, is that you? And, she, and he's, like, oh, yes, it's me, Meyer. <laughs> oh, yes. It's so, like, it's such a bad read, and I don't know if it's just poorly uh, directed or just... Darling, is that you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like... Oh, it's me, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's me. That's me, the Meyer boy. Yeah, like, he looks to the camera. Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. There, there, there are, like, little moments where where it feels dated in that sense, certainly. Um, yeah, but I think probably if we looked at all the dubs that came out in like 2000 and around that era, this probably holds up better than a lot of them. No, I, I would honestly agree with that because I feel like there were ones even at the time where I was like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> well, and like one thing I was kind of wondering was like, because like D in particular is just really flat and dull. And I kind of wondered if that was by design because he is just such a stoic 
like painfully stoic character. Yeah, I assume a lot of that, maybe not all of it, but I assume a lot of that is is by design because the point is that he's trying to be this particular sort of character divorced from the goings on because he's so like old and jaded about the whole yeah. thing and like you know really holding in all of his negative emotions. He's just such a stalwart constant like, you know, he's always there. The tides may change, history changes, all that. He's Still there. He's still alive. He's still not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He he lives all the talking to his left hand. Yeah. D's like, uh, talk to the hand. He's like, no, really. Talk to the hand. <laughs> but, like, yeah, like, generally, I think, you know, it, it just works. It's not, like, it's not a, it's not a detriment to the, the film. Like, you, you can kind of interpret it as, okay, yeah, he's just, like, he's not big on social graces. He's going to step on down to the <laughs> oasis. Totally. <laughs> so then I want to talk about the relationships of all these characters, because I think that's sort of the core of the storytelling in Bloodlust. It's so much about how these individual characters interact with the rest of the world. And we see that, I think, most prominently in the relationship between Layla and Dee. Um, especially with, like, Layla's just sort of complete and utter distrust of and disgust at vampires, and Dee's similar disgust at vampires. Mm -hmm. I think at one point he does say that he's, like, is kind of jealous of Layla because he can never live as a human. Yeah. Like, it, it's very much the, you know, I am disgusted by the very thought of you. And then D goes, yeah, same. <laughs> D is just the eternal shit poster. <laughs> D's like uh, being told he's like uh, he's a traitor by Carmilla, and he's like, uh, lol, <laughs> lol, yeah, that owns. <laughs> he shows up and he's like, sup, it's me, the garbage kid. Let's do this. <laughs> but yeah, so like. But all, Layla's entire arc, where at the start she's sort of, like, cruel and merciless, merciless and so eager to kill Meyer Link, and the way that sort of her relationship with Dee and seeing all of the Marcus brothers killed and her brother killed and Charlotte killed all over this ultimately very petty squabble, mm. like, kind of pushes her to realize how worthless this idea of revenge is because the collateral damage of this one you know this one job is so large that it basically leaves Layla without anyone yeah like no one comes out of bloodlust happy yeah or at least not of that particular confrontation there's i mean like the 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 ending is not like overwhelmingly happy or anything <laughs> by any means i mean it's not like it's not dire but it's not like you know uplifting either it's bittersweet yeah and like that really comes to a head with like when before they go into the the carmilla's castle grove is like if you leave here you will not come back alive and layla is like too hellbent on her crusade yeah to recognize what he's trying to say that he has to save her and end up 
committing suicide, basically, in order to, to protect her. Yeah. And this makes her realize this futility. And, like, then at the very end, you see Layla, you know, cheering on the spaceship, like, come on, get out of here. Leave this fucking garbage world and be able to leave where you guys could be happy. Yeah. <laughs> leave this blasted Earth. Yeah, totally. It's, and that's, like, I, I think the core of the story is how, like, Meyer is ultimately a, a sympathetic antagonist. Yeah. Um, you know, Meyer and Charlotte's relationship is the only good relationship in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you, you, uh, you, like, you go through the whole story being like, there's gotta be something more to it. Like, you know, she's been brainwashed or something, and then it is just like, nope, we really just love each other. <laughs> Yeah, and the, you know, I, I think this is, this might be a uh, book exclusive, but like more information about Myers, like, yeah, he doesn't hunt after humans, right? He like eats whatever synthetic blood that the vampires have been able to create. Mm. And he doesn't, you know, like go and attack humans needlessly. He just fell in love with this girl and really wants to, to live his life with her. Right. And Charlotte feels the same way where it's like, and she says it multiple times, I know Meyer better than any of you do. He's a cool dude. And they just won't listen to him until it's much too late. Yeah. Because of these, these prejudices. And that's sort of, that's sort of Meyer and Charlotte's story is like this forbidden love thing that goes beyond sort of, you know, their, their lots in life and instead explores like, you know, the, the difficulties of trying to get people to accept something that they don't understand. Yeah. And then like, I think there's a, there, there's a kinship ultimately, between Meyer and D, right? Um, D is not, like, super invested uh, in, in the whole uh, uh, Charlotte retrieval thing. He's much more interested in exterminating these vampires, but, like, as he starts to learn more about Meyer and Charlotte and their relationship and how they interact, I think there's, like, a there's an understanding between them because they're both vampiric characters. They're both people who are discriminated against but they are both going against their like carnal nature in order to protect humans and take care of them or at the very least not bring them harm right so yeah it, it like all these different relationships come to to be like although the the royal vampires are the ones who that, that have enslaved these people for millennia we recognize that there are good ones within there and, you know, it's not just a, a black and white situation. Yeah. They're not just, like, monsters. Yeah. Now, Carmilla, absolutely a monster. <laughs> yeah. Carmilla is like, oh, I'm going to steal this, this girl's blood to revive. Uh, I'm going to belittle this uh, Dampier and tell him he's a traitor to his vampire blood. Yeah, she's just, like, she's basically just like, yeah, you know what? I just like killing. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> And her bloodlust was so strong that literally the King of Vampires is like, all right, let's calm down a little. <laughs> Slide out of the saddle there. <laughs> yeah. Hold up, buddy. Uh, but yeah, there's just like, I mean, I don't know if we wanted to move on yet or not, but like, I just, I don't know. There's, there's a, a variety, like, I wanted to talk more about like maybe rivalries and alliances because that's kind of interesting to me because it's, there's. There's a lot of shifting over time, not just with, like, you know, Layla going from being 
rivals to pseudo enemies back to rivals back to al or eventually to allies you know Mm -hmm. but like you know the kind of contentious rivalry between d and you know the marcus family yeah especially borgoff where it's like he starts out like ah we're just doing another job you know it's another night on the town and as more of his brothers die he becomes more and more filled with this this hatred and this di- desire to, you know, just exterminate Meyer and the the Barbaroi right. to the point where he like becomes not not totally. I mean, until he turns, but like antagonistic towards uh towards D. Yeah, because like at the beginning, it's kind of like it's set up as like this understanding that it's like you know when you get two hunters or two groups of hunters, you know, going after the same um mark. It's like, well, anything goes, man. It's just, that's the nature of the game. Like, we'll, we'll maybe try to take each other out, because we gotta get that reward. We gotta get that bread. Yeah, and Borgoff at the beginning is like, yeah, we sa- we saved D all the work from those zombies, so he's gotta owe us one. And by the end, he's just like, yeah, get out my fucking face. I got, you know, I've got this thing to do, and you're not getting in the way of it. Yeah. And then, like, you know, obviously there's, like, the relationship between D and his hand, like... <laughs> Left hand is just there to quip and be an asshole. They clearly aren't buddies. They've lived with each other for forever, but they clear they clearly are not friends. Um, but it's, like, it's very much a, like, usually when, when, you know, the hand is being, uh, sympathetic to him, it's basically like, look, don't die, because then I die. <laughs> yeah, it- it, it's very, like, he's very clear, yeah, he's a symbiote, he's a parasite, right? It's, it's Venom-esque. Yeah. But, like, Left Hand knows, hey, I gotta help this asshole, because he's the reason I'm living. Yeah. And Left Hand is really good at, like, more or less devouring magic, right? He's, he's still a parasite, but it's a beneficial parasitic relationship. But, like, whenever he has to do anything, he's gonna definitely, you know, piss and moan about it. <laughs> Because they'll be like, you're a freaking slave driver. <laughs> I gotta do one yeah. thing. <laughs> and it's like, hey, uh, left hand, can you track this, uh, the, these, uh, like, footprints in the sand? And he just, like, shoves left hand's face into the yeah. sand. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> He's like, eat this asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah. And then, uh, you know, like, there's, like, the part where, um, what's his name? Um... Benge, uh, like, ties him up in, like, the strands of shadow. Oh, right, when he makes him, like, the little, like, cat's cradle kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and then, and then he's like, hey, like, eat your way out of this. Like, this sucks. <laughs> and then he's like, I don't, <laughs> he's like, I don't want to, but fine. Oh, <laughs> uh, I guess. Yeah, like, he's just very much like a complainer whenever he, like, he has to, he has to, like, step in and do stuff, what, like, four times throughout the course of the, the movie? And every time mm-hmm. he's so just indignant about it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fu- it's a fun sort of like classic dynamic of sort of you know the the talkative sidekick and the the you know the the more gruff like seasoned veteran kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, like that's that's a pretty good just relationship where it's like a little bit of comedy there, and yeah, not not enough to pull away from anything, right? It just feels like this is how they travel. But when push comes to shove. Shit's gonna get real, and like left hand isn't gonna just be there, like eh, bad hit, you dumbass, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Though I did like the one part where, um, like where he uh, the sword clashed, and it like he was like, "Oh my face!" 
It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, the last big relationship we see kind of played out more explicitly is um, D and all of humanity. Because mm. you can see how the the people that hired him are not super happy about how having to hire a Dampier. Yeah. And literally no one's happy about him existing in the uh in the town where he gets the new horse except for the man who sells it to him because he was part of a group that D explicitly saved. Like no one no one likes or trusts him either on the supernatural side or the human side. Yeah, everyone just fucking hates D because he he is like a half breed, right? He does not exist in one or the other and the vampires hate him because he's using his powers to exterminate them, and the humans hate him because he's a vampire, which they have been uh, told genetically to, to fear and to hate. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, even in the opening scene where, you know, he's negotiating with, um, with uh, Charlotte's father, and, like, all of his men are ready to blast his head off, like, the whole time, basically. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the only reason he makes it out of that town is, like, you know, this this old man is like, hey, you saved me as a kid, and no one else in this city remembers it but me, so I'm the only one who's going to be on your side. Yeah. And, and like, everything is f- framed as him as, like, an antagonistic relationship where, like, he saved all these kids, no one got hurt from this vampire, and yet they, like, stoned him and threw him out of their town, you know, and... Yeah, like, he he's, he's continuing to try to save this fucked earth that just doesn't not only doesn't care about him but doesn't even like appreciate or want any of his help yeah it's it's a it's a good narrative i think for like the the loner archetype where like he does all these things knowing full well that no one's going to thank him at the end of the day yeah he just wants to leave this place in a better position each time he does something like i one one like one more just relationship to me is like um, D with Carmilla, because it's like obviously the relationship with D and Meyer, it's more of a there's like a level of understanding at the end of it. Carmilla, Carmilla ends up being, even though she's not like the final fight, she's kind of the real antagonist. They're like, there's that's where you see the real like difference in personality and characters because like. They both kind of when they're when they're talking to each other during their fight, they both mention the rule of nature and to the two of them that refers to different things. To Carmilla, it's, you know, the the rule of nature is for vampires to prey on humans. Um and to uh D, the rule of nature is that vampires need to be extinct because they're an affront to nature, to human life, to everything. Mm-hmm. So it's just that like that difference in philosophy. Yeah, and it's a happy coincidence that, like, Carmilla's there because, like, D still gets the sick vampire kill at the end. Yeah. He's still, like, ridding the world of another terrible vampire. It just doesn't have to be Meyer. Yeah. Like, it still feels like he's accomplished something by the end of it. (laughs) So that's nice. (laughs) Yeah. So, speaking of Carmilla. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing that, like, I think is really cool and where, like, yeah, the, the horror part of this horror series really sticks out 
in animation is the illusions that she uses in her castle to sort of like, you know, trick the vampire hunters and try to uh, get them off guard. Yeah, this is like the real highlight of the film to me. Yeah, this this really feels like the, this whole bit's the climax, you know? Yeah, and this is like where the, the real horror elements come in, like we said earlier. Um, and it's kind of like... She's she's like one with the castle. Like the castle's almost its own character. Right. It's shown that when she dies, the the castle like crumbles apart. Like her spirit is the thing keeping it up after yeah, she's died. Like literally, you know, keeping it glued together. But yeah, like you, you know, and and how the castle interacts with each character to kind of kind of almost have like a dialogue with them and get their motivations and mess with them and antagonize them. And in you know, in the case of Borgoff, kill him. Like the castle kills Borgoff, basically. <laughs> yeah. It's a really strong, like, bit of characterization for all these characters, and also like the first time things feel really uneasy because yeah. even you don't really understand what's happening through all of this. Like the way it's cut and everything, it's like, yes, you know they've gotten into these illusions, but like you're not really sure what the end goal is or what you know what's gonna happen, and like the cut where D saves Layla right before she runs after her younger self in the illusion, and the chandelier is about to like smash on her and kill her, is like such a good moment. Yeah, well, and then too, like leading up to this part, um, where they keep talking about like like all the, you know not only just um, Charlotte and Meyer, but also you know the people pursuing them, um, going like oh man like either you know. We gotta get to the castle before they get to us, or you know, we gotta get them before they get to the castle. Like, they're you know they're like worried about specifically the castle, um, and they don't really mention Carmilla. Like, it's, she's almost an, like it's not so much that they're directly afraid of Carmilla, I guess, as so much as the castle in which she resides and haunts. <laughs> right, and that's because she's such a you know strong dangerous vampire in life and it seems like her spirit form has only only sort of made her more powerful within the castle right because it's like she's you know she's dead she is no more but she is the castle and she is really really dangerous (laughs) (laughs) and she is pissed yeah and then we had talked about it before like the 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 supernatural effects leading up to the carmilla fight with like the scene of Charlotte sort of following her own illusion and then getting bit and her blood flowing into the sarcophagus of Carmilla is so good. Yeah. And, like, all the music really fits the scene. Like, it's this good, like, symphonic sort of thing that really, you know, sets the mood for this this very haunting castle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it it very much, like, that part, like, very much kind of reminded me of, like, the, like, the the Bram Stoker's Dracula, like, a lot of, like, the visuals of that, like, the Coppola version that was also 90s, I think? Uh, Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah. I personally really like that movie. I know some people kind of think it's a little campy, but, like, I think they're, they get a lot of, like, the really interesting, like, horror kind of moments of like Dracula's castle down pretty well and that mm-hmm. kind of gives me that vibe too where it's just like this this twisted building with all these weird effects and and right and you get that within this this 
mansion, anything is possible. Yeah. Because of her powers. So, like, it makes a lot of sense why the, the PS1 game that they made off of Vampire Hunter D is not only based on this same book as Bloodlust, but it's just the castle portion. Hmm. Because that opens the gate for all of these different ideas and everything. That makes sense. It's just a real good set piece. Just period. And and there's just a lot you can do with it. Yeah, like, it's so cool how once, as everything's crumbling apart, they have sort of this final confrontation. And you just see everything, you know, being destroyed as Meyer and D sort of separate. And Meyer goes to the spaceship and the kind of the last hope to to escape his predicament. Mm. It's such an effective sort of, you know, visualization. Right. And in talks of, like, the, the, where the horror elements really stick outside of sort of the the more, like, grotesque sort of monsters and everything, what is the horror of Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust? Like, what is the part that is supposed to unnerve you? Right? We talked about it a little bit with sort of all of sort of Carmilla's illusions and the way that things go down within the castle and sort of like these betrayals and these, you know, situations that end up. But like the the horror is also in some ways like a very humanitarian message about understanding others yeah, and respecting others because it, it's definitely more than the monsters, right? Because we see a very particular type of intolerance in the relationships with Meyer Link, in the treatment of D by the sheriff, in the entirety of Layla's revenge arc, it shows that nothing good ever comes from this this animosity, this inability to try and understand others. Because there are people like Carmilla where like they're just bad people and that's what they want out of life is to is to rule over others. But Meyer Link just wants to live a happy life. D just wants to do better for the world. And, like, everyone just hates them implicitly. And even D has to get over his vampire prejudice when it comes to Meyer Link. Yeah, I mean, it's like, in addition to, you know, the, the supernatural elements of it, like, the real, just terrible, awful thing, like, horrifying thing of the, of the world is that it's just so bleak. It's so ruined. It's a place where, you know, humanity is enslaved by vampires. It's a place where, you know, a lot of death and a lot of suffering and a lot of just terrible things have happened and continue to happen. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the the final scene so effective, where it's like, we do get this this idea that people have been bettered out of this encounter, right? Yeah. Leela found someone to love, and created this family and people care for her and there's this small community around her like the world is bettered by the things that d has done yeah it's like it's generally not a a world where people can live safely or comfortably or happy but i mean yeah at the at that kind of scene it kind of suggests that they have at least put together in her lifetime at least like a a, you know a, a peaceful well-protected village, you know, Mm -hmm. where you can kind of at least live somewhat normally. Yeah, and as much as the horror is not about the monsters, it's also about the monsters, right? Um, Again, we talked about it, Carmilla. Carmilla is a genuine monster. Yeah. Right? The the horrific things she does. The Barbaroi are 
a particularly cruel in yeah. a way that is definitely horrific, right? Like the nonchalant death of Nolt is really big. Yeah. Right? The the way that the the werewolf just slashes through uh Kyle's back and like takes out one of Borgoff's eyes. Yeah. And like just the fact that all of the uh Barbaroi are sort of these like technologically and like, you know, scientifically created monsters with these very particular like powers and stuff that live in sort of, they the way that they talk about when um the Marcus brothers initially enter the Barbaroi like territory is like it's it's very unsettling because it's like, you know, we've lived here for so long and we've grown up in this environment. We've attuned to it. How can you possibly stand against us in our home turf, basically? Right. Yeah, it's like they're almost like biological weapons in a way, you know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. And then, like, another, like, monstrous bit is definitely, like, Borgoff's revenge arc, right? Where you see how his character gets more and more reckless as he feels like he needs to uh, avenge his his brother's deaths in this suicide mission and how ultimately like his weakness for his not really weakness but like you know the way that his uh relationship with his family goes ends up getting him killed yeah and and turned cuz like you know grove says you're going to die if you leave and no one's listening to him so he has to be the one to save Layla, ultimately, even though Borgoff's too, too long gone. Yeah. I also like that um, you can tell when he's gone bad, because he uh, no longer has his big chompy cigar in his mouth. Right, yeah. Vampires don't smoke. That's a rule. Yeah, they live above the influence. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, when it comes down to the horror, the horror is definitely like, very much well-contained within the castle, but there are things outside of it, like, you know, the non-traditional horror, like, you know, kind of the the commentary mm-hmm. of the story. You really dive into, like, the horrors of human nature to sort of reject things they can't understand. Right. So, ultimately... I was really happy to have watched this movie. I think it's like super cool. <laughs> yeah, I was I was uh, surprised because I actually I was like I wasn't too sure how I was gonna feel about it because I like I said I I didn't really feel too strongly about it back then even when I was into anime. So it's like now when I'm kind of more like selectively into it, I'm like I my my expectations were fairly low, but but I had a pretty good time. Like, it was a good action romp. The The storytelling was surprisingly well executed. And the characters were actually surprisingly interesting. Yeah, it does a lot with a little, I think. Yeah. Right? Like, the action set pieces are big, but when it tells its story, it does it with more, like, subtle elements. Hmm. And, like, I think it's a really effective piece of, like kind of vampire uh pop culture right like yeah it does something cool to vampires that i mean at the time it's like sort of like the the first blade movie had come out uh, at that point right like uh we were a couple years out from van helsing which (laughs) (laughs) well when and when did um when did underworld come out um underworld um 
And then obviously there's also, um, you know, White Wolf too. Yeah. Being like, you know, vampires in a very, you know, non-Gothic setting. Yeah, this is definitely like classical vampires in a decidedly non-classical setting. And I think that helps like differentiate it from things that were coming out at the time. That's, yeah, that's always like a really, you know, refreshing kind of change of pace. And I guess that's one element that I actually forgot about. I kind of forgot that it was set in the distant future. I kind of remembered it just being like a standard vampire thing. So I like when when I when I realized that that it was such a, a different setting, I, I kind of figured I might actually, you know, this might jive pretty well with me because I like that kind of divorcing a character from its uh, cliched, troped kind of setting, you know. Yeah, and it and it feels like it it matches in that way with sort of like the era of Blade, you know, where it's like vampire modern day or like Buffy, you know, yeah. where it's modernizing the vampire. And this, like, uses a classical setting and expands upon that in a way to differentiate itself rather than just being like, this is modern time vampires. Well, it's like, you know, a lot of that kind of modern day setting vampire stuff, it was a lot of like, you know, here's how the vampire is adapted to the changes in human society. Here's how they, obviously in the shadows of human society grew with it and changed with it and kind of learned like, okay, this is what the humans do now. This is what we do now because of that. Um, but like in, in this setting, it's, it's a reversal. They're the ones running the show. They're, they're no longer, you know, they're no longer in the shadows. They're, they're the authority. Yeah. They're the dominant species. They're literally living in the shadows because they don't want to, you know, be fried, but you know, yeah. They're they're no longer on the edge of human consciousness. They've broken out. They've you know dominated. Yeah, it's it's a very cool setting that again is very familiar, but distinguishes itself in a number of ways to make it feel fresh and exciting against sort of you know the number of vampire uh, franchises, not only still coming out but that were coming out at the time. Yeah, and it's like kind of a shame that this has sort of, it seems like it's been forgotten in a lot of ways. Like, Vampire Hunter D is not something that people talk a lot about. And I think part of that is just, like, never breaking out into the West in the same way. Like, we only started getting the books in 2005. Like, things really never expanded outside of the movies mm -hmm. for for English audiences. And it's like, it, it's a shame because this this feels like the sort of thing that would have stood the test of time in the same way that you're your cowboy bebops did and like more underground classics like Escaflone right. and, you know, like Nadia and stuff have continued to exist in the public consciousness. Yeah. It really is kind of interesting that it doesn't seem to have the same like legacy that some of these others do. Yeah. And like, it, it's made me interested in like trying to pick up like copies of the books and like kind of keeping track of like the new upcoming comic book series and stuff like, you know, seeing not only how the original author kind of expands on these stories and does the the book writing, but like also how other authors are able to explore this particular character in this particular world. This has definitely interested me in trying to explore more of what Vampire Hunter D is. Yeah. But yeah, so it it's a really solid movie. It's 
it's a very breezy sort of 100 minutes. Yeah, and it's very accessible when you don't know the source material. It's not one of those kind of movies where, you know, you have to know Vampire Hunter D going in. Like, this is, you know, it's obviously designed and written with the fans in mind, but uh, it's not exclusive. Yeah, it, it very much feels a serial story in the way that, like, you could pick up any of the books and you could feel comfortable in the world where, like, you're, you're not expected to know too much more about the world, but the things you do know going in may enhance the enjoyment of the thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not in the same way that, like, going to see, like, a Marvel movie now is or going to see other anime tie-in movies where it's, like, side stories to the source material. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As as someone who's never been super into, like, superhero movies, I, I or, like, superheroes in general, like, I, I can't watch a lot of them because I'm only going to really get maybe, like, a third of what's going on, so. Yeah, it's, it, like, it's an effective marketing strategy that you, you, you get these people to watch more and more of these movies to understand everything, but, like, it makes it less accessible, ultimately, that you're, like, trying to tie in all these characters and have this, like, expanded universe where Vampire Hunter D is like, here's a day in the life of D, and you're, you're going to get everything you need to know about the story and the characters through X number of pages, or in this case, the 100 minutes. Yeah. They, like, they effectively let you know that this is, you know, supposed to be the real world, but there's, you know, supernatural shit going on. It's the distant future. Things are just fucked. Um, <laughs> and that's really all you need to know about the world. Yeah, no, it's, it's very good. Yeah, I, this is a big recommend. Uh, it's not terribly hard to find. It, I think just last year it got a Blu-ray release that you can go check out. And it, it seems like it's relatively cheap. So if, if you want to watch this, it's like, not too hard to get. It's not streaming anywhere, um, as far as I'm aware, but it's not too hard to get a copy of. And I think it's totally worth it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a good, it was a good watch. Yeah, totally. I was glad to do it. And it definitely like, you know, it's, it was one of the things that's like, oh yeah, it's October, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to that spooky Halloween mood. Getting in the spook mood. So, uh, before we go, I got a couple pieces of fan mail that I wanted to go over for this episode. And the first one comes from, uh, from the, the Finnish Dongo, who uh, has a very particular experience because they, they live outside of the U.S. It was one of my first, uh, very first anime DVDs I ever owned with a, uh, with a Scandinavian release of Love, Hina. What a combo. Oh, man. I feel like that's the most perfect 2000s thing I've yeah. ever heard. No, like... But, I'm, like, man, what a combo. <laughs> like, I was trying to think earlier about, like, what was I watching when I was into uh, anime? And, yeah, Love, Hina was kind of on that list, so... <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, uh, my parents got that as a subscriber gift from a Finnish magazine called uh, anime magazine, uh, literally, which nice. is cool. I wonder if that still exists, because I feel like the only print magazine for anime, or really, like, cartoons, it feels like at this point, is, like, Otaku USA. Mm. 
Like I, I occasionally go through the magazine rack at like, you know, the, the drugstore and I have only once found a copy of an Otaku USA hidden behind all the car magazines. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> just that's just the life, baby. The, the shame is palpable. <laughs> it's like, it's like when, when you, when you take the, uh, when they take like the porn magazine out of the section and then they're like, Oh, I still have this. Oh shit. Then just shove it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like the, the kid wanting to, wanting to get it, but then like, like, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. My mom's going to see it. <laughs> right. I have, I have to talk to someone about this. So I better put this back. <laughs> uh, finished Dongo finishes by saying my memories of Vampire D bloodlust are pretty foggy, but I remember it being a good anime film. And I think it, it really is. And I think it's, mm, it's an easier recommend than say, you know, like we talked about before, uh, Ninja Scroll, which is a <laughs> a a close competitor for that similar yeah, era and no. a, a largely similar staff, not only in dub but in like animation and director and stuff. Like, no, I definitely was, um, I definitely was very much a fifteen-year-old renting that at the uh, <laughs> at the at Blockbuster and then just being like, holy shit. <laughs> and and I I you know I, is this legal? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, fifteen year old me being like, this is so epic! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and also, when your parents come in, you pause it or change to another channel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I n- no, I would not recommend Ninja Scroll. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> Bloodlust, much easier to recommend. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> also I have one from Future Friend that says, Did Vampire Hunter D ever pull a D's nuts, or will anime always be low art? <laughs> anime will always be low art. <laughs> and like, I get it, but like... <laughs> I think if... Okay. So first of all, culture has expanded to the point where I think D's nuts has been lost to the history of time in Vampire Hunter D. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. They don't have a D's nuts, they don't have a CDs, they don't have a Ligma, right? Like <laughs> yeah. life is so concerned about surviving this vampire hell that they don't have time for this. I mean, I I, I respectively respectfully disagree because we live in a world where we constantly <laughs> have to worry about dying. And the only thing we do right now is shit post. <laughs> So, That's right. Well, okay, if one person's gonna drop a D's nuts, it's absolutely left hand. Yeah, it's left hand, yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, uh, I, I have to imagine that the world of Vampire Hunter D is full of shit posters, I'm sorry. They're just... <laughs> <laughs> they're out there. One of the books, one of the villages is just full of people, like, irony, you know, being ironic and, just- like... Oh, we don't have any more water today because the well dried up. Lol, that owns. Yeah, just just like humans, and then you know maybe even some monsters, just completely irony poisoned. <laughs> right, like you know, uh, a vampire comes in and uh, and like kidnaps like the mayor or whatever, and they're like, "Wow, epic!" <laughs> like that's because people deal with this this sort of like never ending grief in very different ways. Yeah, maybe there is a village out there that's just like. Through a bunch of people, it's like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then one final message from friend of the show, QB, who says, 
If you were hired by Netflix to direct a live-action reboot of Vampire Hunter D, what changes would you make, if any, to make it, quote, cool by modern standards, end quote, and who would you cast in it? By the way, you are not allowed to change the ending in any way. So, uh, what I love about this message is because before this, I was talking to QB uh, about the PS1 game and how um, there are multiple endings because you can you can treat things in different ways. But like the the canon true ending is exactly the same as the movie, and it's the exact same framing and everything, but in shitty PS1 like Resident Evil style graphics. Nice. So I think that has to be the constant, right? No matter what. You get people to do the exact same thing at the end with Meyer Link. <laughs> okay, so live action reboot of Vampire Hunter D. Do we have to make it any changes to make it cool? Um, left hand smokes a cigar constantly. Or an e-cig. <laughs> he vapes. Just, yeah, he vapes. <laughs> he, he, there's just a vape rig constantly sticking out of his left hand. <laughs> or, or he's just like, D. Hand it to me. And he has to put the vape in his mouth. <laughs> like, I think it is like a very, um, it's a very modern action movie. I don't feel like there's a lot that needs to be changed to make it cooler. Or like, you know, that that feels really dated. Yeah. About the, the, the movie in particular. I'm trying to think if there if there is anything I would want to change. I, um, I mean, I would want the fight with, uh, the, the, um, what's his name? The, uh, werewolf to maybe have more substance. Left in. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't bring this up in the voice acting and absolutely should have, because it was the one thing that stood out to me as weird, which is Meyer Link is a noble vampire, right? He's a royal. Mm. And he tells D to, quote, Save his sorry ass, end quote. <laughs> and also says, uh, Dampier, if you're trying to fight me, you're either a moron or a fool. Let's see which. Which, like, really feels out of place for the character he's trying to be. So I either need this live action reboot to lean more into this, where, like, the slang is included in the vernacular of 12,000 AD, or they go further back and the nobles specifically have to all talk in like old timey English. Well, you don't know. Maybe, maybe he just grew up surrounded by a bunch of pop culture. <laughs> right. Well, then I want to see that pop culture, right? Like I want, you know, D while he's like recovering from sun sickness with Layla under that thing to be like watching a uh, virtual TV or yeah. something. Yeah. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I want like I want there to be a character who's like you know um, a- another like vampire who's just been around forever and you know he's got like the most extensive collection of like rap records and it's just <laughs> defined who he is like he's just the biggest rap collector. But his favorite album of all, the uh, Castlevania Perfect Rap Album. Oh, <laughs> have you heard that before? Are you familiar with this? No. Okay, so the Castlevania Perfect Rap album was put out officially by Konami. Oh, man. I think after Castlevania 3 came out. Huh. It's called, like, Perfect Selection Dracula Rap, Mm. or something like that. And it is 
all of your favorite classic Castlevania tracks like Bloody Tears and Vampire Killer remixed into rap beats, and they have someone doing Castlevania-themed raps over them. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, so I just assume that that's kind of, that's, that's like the big thing, is like Perfect Selection Dracula. Yeah, but like... You know, yeah, like these characters live forever. They've seen, they've been through so much shit. Like, you know, they've got to, like, some of them have to be niche as fuck in terms of, like, right. what they remember and what they've curated. And, like, you know, like, yeah, this is, this is, you know, it's what, 12, 12,000, whatever AD or some shit? Yeah. Like, you know, they, they've got to remember a bunch of random bullshit from, you know, thousands of years ago you know yeah totally i i i do want a a a slight exploration into the the like vampire culture i want to know what they've been up to partying hard right like that's what i'm looking for but otherwise like i think it holds up pretty well oh yeah uh the the other one who are we casting in the movie Mm. see i'm not so good with actors yeah i'm i'm having a lot of trouble thinking of actors as well i just get everyone from the Van Helsing movie and just recast them. <laughs> <laughs> they walk around with, like, name tags that have, like, their old name crossed out, like, their previous character name crossed out, and the new character yeah. name written on top. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Hugh Jackman as D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scarlett Johansson as Layla. I-, I will say, I will say left hand is Danny DeVito. <laughs> that's the voice you're going for yeah i could also see it as um like literally any of uh, adam sandler's friends like <laughs> trying to imagine the voice that comes out of it oh, is like man, rob schneider <laughs> <laughs> you're riding your horse through the desert and suddenly david spade starts yelling at you <laughs> Just just out of nowhere, just dropping, like, pop culture references because his brain is just overcooked on that and he's just been around that long. So he, like, <laughs> and he just references all of his old movies, so he's just like, D, you can do it! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we get, uh, alright, we get Paul W.S. Anderson to, to, uh... <laughs> To direct it, because of course we do. Right. We get uh, Mila Jovovich to, uh, to, to actually, we get Mila Jovovich to play Carmilla. Mm. Oh my goodness. Just just get everyone from the Resident Evil movies back. <laughs> or who are they getting in the in the Monster Hunter movie? Uh, Mila Jovovich is in that as well. Really? Um, shit. I'm trying to remember who who else has been. Oh, Ron Perlman. Okay. Ron oh, okay. Perlman as left hand is actually a good choice. That's oh. that's my call. <laughs> I was I was like thinking like Ron Perlman as um like he'd be pretty good for uh Borgoff. Borgoff. Yeah. Oh shit, that's good too. Oh man. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and then you could get like you could get that one uh pro wrestler uh Batista or whatever. He could be um what's his <laughs> name? Um uh Nolt. Dave Batista. Yeah, yeah. But he could be Nolt because he's like he's like you know. Stoic. Oh, he's a, he's like a big dude. Yeah, he's big and stoic. Oh, I can totally he, see it. Yeah, he totally get into the face paint thing. I mean, you see him in like Guardians. He's got basically that whole thing going on. Yeah. Damn, that's cool. Um. Hmm. 
Okay, before we get out of this, we gotta have at least one good choice for uh, D and Layla. Oh, yeah. Hmm. If it were the 1990s before everything bad went down, I'd say Johnny Depp for D, but we can't have that anymore oh. because he's a horrible human being. Yeah, fuck that. No, um, I, oh man, no, I, I, I want, uh, I, I want Keanu Reeves, I think. Okay, but Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn as D and left hand together. <laughs> oh man, the ultimate buddy comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you flash it up a little, you make it like there's a little more rapport between them. I mean, I mean, they are literally wedding crashers in this film. <laughs> Oh my god. We literally did this for the Speed Racer episode, too. God damn it. <laughs> I like Keanu Reeves, um, because I feel like, as he's gotten older, he's, he's been better at being sort of a, a less pronounced actor, right? He can, he can like, do sort of the, the cold brooding thing a little yeah. bit better. Like, I mean, he's, he's someone who, like, you know, you talk about early career, it would have worked because he's, like, awkward and, and really just not sure where to be. Cause, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, speaking earlier about Bram Stoker's Dracula, that's kind of where he was. He was very, like, out of place. Though it worked in the, in the context of that film, cause his character pretty much is that. Um, but, like, you know, yeah, later career, he can, you know, he's got all, he's got more of a range and like can, can do stuff ironically or unironically, you know, like pretty well, like in terms of being like a strange kind of character. Yeah. I think he's got sort of the serious role down more pat as, you know, the, as his career has gone on to the way that he could, he could do an effective D, you know, yeah. he kind of quips, uh, you know, kind of deadpan. He doesn't talk a lot but he still does the cool action stuff. Yeah. Kind of the, the, the about face of like a John Wick. Though I guess, I guess um, by nature though, cause he's supposed to be like all, you know, young and handsome and stuff. So I guess you'd have to pick someone like that, but I don't, I don't know young actors very well. So I'm, I'm uh, time to Google young actors, <laughs> but I, I do think that's a, that's a pretty solid choice. And now last one, we need someone for Layla. I, I'm just so bad with uh with like actors and actresses. Like I I just don't want to be like, uh, I guess add Jennifer Lawrence, because everyone says uh Jennifer Lawrence for their movies, so like I mean I probably would I don't I don't know. Um like Uma Thurman like circa Kill Bill would be perfect, <laughs> I think. Cause she is that like badass. Right, use the makeup to young young her up a little bit. Um, but again, I don't know like a lot of young actors and actresses. So, mm-hmm. uh, Hayden Panatera, the other like younger actress that I can think of. What's she been in? Uh, the the cheerleader from uh, Heroes. Oh, huh. I think that's about as good as we're going to be able to get. But I think we have a good cast. We have a good setup. I think we we can fund this. Netflix loves throwing out their invisible money. Why not to us? We've got this. (laughs) 
So yeah, that's Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust. Thanks for joining me, Hobo. Yeah. Uh, nice to have you on the show again after uh, Lupin for a very decidedly different situation. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's fun. Like I, like I said, like, it's like um, when um, uh, when we did Lupin, I knew I was going to love that because I've, I've always loved Lupin. But uh, this one I wasn't sure about because I never had strong feelings about it. And I was, I was kind of worried that it was going to age poorly. But yeah, I, I'm glad it turned out well. I figured, I figured if nothing else, like I figured worst case scenario, it'd be fun on like a campy level. But yeah, I found myself like surprisingly enjoying it without like camp. So mm-hmm. yeah, totally. Uh, have you had a chance to check out Lupin Part Five yet? No, I still need to. Yeah, it it, it finished up, and wow, it's uh, it's a real banger series. Oh man, especially if you appreciated Part Four for how it sort of modernized Lupin. Part five takes it a full another step to really like explore how Lupin fits into sort of like, you know, a 2018 world and the way that things have just expanded since when he initially came out. Hell yeah. That's like extremely my shit. I, now I have to see it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a treatment that I don't think a lot of older series get, which is like a, a direct question of like, do these characters still sit in sort of modern day? Right. So it's very cool. And like Vampire Hunter D holds holds up against the test of time, but also is like such a it's such a snapshot of where animation is specifically like Western interest in animation was mm. in like 2000, 2001. I think that it really stands an interesting place in history because of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much a you see it and like even even without knowing, you know, precisely when it came out, you can tell it's late 90s, early 2000s, but but it's not it's not to its detriment. I mean, I, I think I've said exactly that already, but still, I, I, I guess it bears repeating. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great movie and like definitely perfect for the season, I feel like. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for doing the episode. Uh, you want to tell the folks where they can find you online or if you want to. If you want to get people uh, looking at your stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I really don't do too much other than just talk about <laughs> sports um, and then, you know, make dumb tweets. But yeah, if you want to follow me, it's at Hopotron, Hopotron 2000. Excuse me. Uh, based off, of course, you know, given the season, uh, based off of the popular film Dracula 2000. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean... I sometimes, I've been trying to start, like, putting together some music and stuff, um, and maybe I'll post it on there at some point, but for the most part, yeah, it's mostly just dumb jokes and, uh, talking about, like, baseball and then video games is basically it. Alright, cool. (laughs) And, as always, you can find me on Twitter at ChorpsAway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y. You can find me on YouTube at ChorpsAwaySA where not only are there video versions of each of these podcasts, there's also uh, video game content on there as well. Uh, You're able to find the podcast at Coco underscore Disaster on Twitter. You can find us at CocoDisaster.com, which has links to our RSS feed, our video backlog, a link to the text-only anime blog that I do on the side with friend of the show, QB, to discuss things that don't quite fit the podcast format, You can also find contact information there, because if you want to send a fan mail to the show, 
you can send it to chorpsawaysa at gmail.com or tweet at us at, as we previously discussed, coca underscore disaster on Twitter. And you can join us next time, where for the next single serving, we're exploring Ping Pong the Animation. So join us then for a decidedly unsports-like sports series. <laughs> Until then, I've been Chorpsaway. I've been Hopatron. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.